Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. John Young, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm doing great, Bill. Thank you. Good, good. Glad to have you uh, on the podcast. This is going to be, I think, uh, an interesting story that you share of, of your experience uh, dealing with Mormonism, dealing with, with thinking more deeply about issues and, and how you've worked out uh, those paradigms. But I want to begin by just sharing with my audience. Uh, today we're sitting down and having an interview with John Young. And John is is likely going to be a contributor of, of future episodes as a guest host here on Mormon Discussion Podcast. Uh, org. And I was hoping that by you guys as listeners getting a chance to hear his story, that you would get a chance to get to know him, get a feel for him, understand his background. And uh, we look forward to uh, to many episodes from John. And so with that, uh, John, I wonder if you might just share with us kind of a, a brief intro, a little idea about who you are and, and give my listeners a feel for uh, for you as a person. Okay, great. Well, I, I live in Boise, Idaho, and I've been a member of the church uh, my entire life, uh, married in the temple. I think i pretty much done everything, minus one thing. I did not serve a mission, but I did serve in the military, uh, which uh, turned out to be well accepted by my ward at the time, so I was grateful for that. I am married. I have four children, and I work a typical job as an engineer. And, you know, I think I have a pretty normal life. I, I, but like many others, you know, I've had some questions, I think, that arose in my mind uh, when I went to college after my military service. And so I have a, a long history that of somewhat silently, you know, dealing with uh, the issues of, you know, what religion is, what it means to me, how do I reconcile that with a secular uh, scientific world that... Uh, comes in real useful to me on the job. So I guess that's a decent brief introduction of myself and, and who I am. Wonderful. Wonderful, John. I, uh, I wonder if you might just start us off telling us a little bit about your, uh, your early childhood. Sure. So you know, I was born in the early 70s, and I, from what I can remember, things were pretty cool. I think the first time, you know, I felt a large amount of sadness uh, was when my parents divorced, and that, you know, somehow sunk into my into my identity, uh, not in the best of ways, uh, but I felt it was something that uh, wasn't necessarily uh, dragging me down. Uh, you know, some psychologists may say differently, but it. <laughs> It may have had an impression on me that uh, maybe I didn't recognize. And what I mean by that is I, I think as a young man in my childhood, I, I rarely uh, did my homework as a kid. I, but I did like to think a lot. I, I think today I'd be diagnosed with ADHD. You know, I love nature. I love science. And I love the gospel. And I recall 
uh, my baptism day uh, very, very explicitly in my mind, and it's very much a fresh memory still. I felt, you know, so amazingly clean and pure when, uh, when I exited the waters that, you know, my testimony had its first formative experience. Uh, when I was baptized, I, I really gained that, that freshness of newness of spirit that uh, I expected to receive, and it was a very beautiful time. Uh, I also had a reputation for giving long uh, testimonies and testimony meeting, even as a kid. And so I, I recall my first testimony after being baptized. I think I talked about how wonderful nature was and how everything was so beautiful and the way it worked together. And the bishop finally had to get up and, and tell me that I needed to get down and let other people have a chance. So that's the, the kind of kid I was. Um, and that continued uh, up into my priesthood ordination. Uh, during that time, uh, you know, I still avoided really doing much uh, in my schoolwork, uh, yet I felt a sense of peace and meaning in studying the scriptures. So I recall as a teacher in the teacher's quorum, I, we were challenged by our priesthood leaders to read the Book of Mormon and I would, you know, for the kid who couldn't do a hill of beans worth of homework for his school teachers, you know, he would come back next week and say, oh, I read 75 pages. You know, I'm in the Book of Alma now. And so I, I read the uh, Book of Mormon quite quickly. And indeed, I read it uh, at least five times uh, before I left high school. Can I ask you a question? Sure. So you're reading the Book of Mormon and you're and you're just kind of I don't know, eating it in giant chunks like that. Yeah. Was it was it just a matter of, you know, hey, this is what I was assigned. Yes, I'm reading it. Or while you're reading it, I mean, is it a deep spiritual experience at the time? I was enthralled by it. I was amazed by it. Um, I felt special, you know, reading it. I felt interested in it. So, you know, I contrast that with my experience with school because for some reason at school, I felt like I didn't want to do what I was told to do. But in church things, I felt like I wanted what I wanted there. And so that personal desire uh, was unique to the church compared to other endeavors uh, in my life at that time. So yeah, it was a very spiritual thing for me. Cool. I, and I didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I, I mean, I certainly want to hear the rest of what. Uh, oh, I can talk forever without felt. being interrupted. So sure, no, no. I, what you <laughs> felt important from the your early childhood, I I certainly wanted you to finish up that those thoughts. But uh, just wanted to get a feel from you from the. Your experience reading the Book of Mormon. Yeah, and to to explain it, you know, one way, you know, when I read about you know Mormon writing uh, to us in the latter days, and you know, you know, ex exhorting us to to ask if the Book of Mormon is true, and I felt a sense of being loved, you know, that hey, here's this guy who will never know or meet me, and yet he cares about me you know, and the rest of us uh, living in modern days so much that he's willing to make these great sacrifices. And I really felt a personal friendship with a lot of the characters, uh, Captain Moroni and Elma, uh, the younger in particular, and uh, Ammon. Uh, they were examples of strength and the way I envisioned manhood uh, with their faith and uh, ability to stand up for, you know, what's right and their freedoms and their rights. So th th those were, you know, not just inspirational, but, you know, I felt a deep connection with these uh, prophets of old. Gotcha, gotcha. And uh, your ward that you, you grew up in as a young man, uh, what kind of a ward was it? Did you, do you feel like you had a lot of support as a young man? I did. I very much did. In fact, my 
my priesthood leaders, you know, when I was assigned to work with um, a home teaching companion, I was assigned either a, a bishop-to-be or a previous bishop. So I know they chose wisely for this young man who didn't have a dad in the home. And so, you know, I had these close relationships, and I they served sort of a surrogate fatherhood uh, just very briefly, you know, during the times I worked with them. And, uh, you know, they were the ones that I would ask questions about, you know, my maleness even. You know, I'd say, hey, you know, should I talk to my mom about... Um, getting soap that doesn't smell like flowers, <laughs> you know, things that, you know, my mom would buy a lot of stuff that was for women, but, you know, as a kid, maybe it didn't matter, but I didn't like the flor- fluoresce, I guess the smell of flowers that was on me from our soap, you know, so I talked to them about those issues and they would encourage me to talk to her and, you know, and certain issues and things growing up about being attracted to females and, you know, what to do about my thoughts and, you know, I, I would talk to them, and I think that did a lot to, you know, strengthen my identity as a church member, to knowing that, you know, when I, you know, was missing something in my life, that the, the church did its best not to take the place of a father, uh, and I still had my father in my life um, much of the time, but they, they did try to pick up some of those loose ends, and, you know, that was a great testimony booster for me. Yeah, you talk about your... Uh... Your dad, you know, your mom being, being divorced and your dad essentially leaving the church. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you talk about, you know, having your mom and you have these ward leaders. Were there other family members that you could lean on as far as uh, church support goes? Oh, certainly. So my, my maternal grandfather, uh, he uh, was a former state president. And, uh, you know, he was a very gung-ho Mormon. And so... You know, I definitely leaned on him and learned from him quite a bit. I think he taught me, you know, a lot about financial responsibility that I picked up. And, you know, he'd give us advice on matters um, spiritual and, you know, and practical. And so that was a, a good uh, role model. And I, I had aunts and uncles. You know, and I also had good friends in the church. I had friends whose parents were very active. And I, I tended to stick to my clique of LDS friends. You know, sometimes we talk about the cliques being bad, and, and sometimes they are because we can exclude people with them. But for for me, being at that age, that formative age of a teenager and a young adult, I, you know, I think there's good that comes out of that. And one of those was to develop friendships that, you know, have lasted, you know, up till now and continue to last that are kind of based in this, uh, hey, we're not only good friends, but we're Mormons. (laughs) And so, you know, my activity in the church was always strong. And uh, yeah, so, I mean, I was very well socialized into the church and uh, very much, you know, grew a a very strong testimony uh, that I often bore uh, to my friends, uh, whether, you know, at a church function or even uh, in a one-on-one discussion. What about uh, what about on your dad's side? You know, did, were his parents members, and when he left, did they leave as well, or what was the? Yeah, so what was your experience there? Yeah, that's a it's a difficult one to explain because I'm not them. And what happened? I think my dad left the church, um, and I'll I'll just say what he's told me, and that is that he felt that God didn't love him. He had a hard time uh, just. Pulling the weight, I think, of uh, the church callings and responsibilities and work. And, you know, now that I'm a father, I realize that's all a lot of big, that's a lot of hard stuff to do, right. <laughs> I admit. Right. 
I, I can definitely, and I think, empathize to some degree with any man who realizes that, hey, this isn't easy, this is really hard, and it can be depressing. Becoming somewhat anti against the church, in fact, very much so. And uh, there was, I guess, a lot of effort on his part to convince us that, you know, the church isn't true, it's fake, it's just going to hurt you like it did me. Uh, you know, that's the message I got from him. Now, my grandparents, you know, my, my dad's parents were very active. My, my grandfather uh, served as a bishop, um, and he served as a bishop under a state president named George Romney. So he was uh, pretty close with George Romney, the one who ran for president and whose son is trying to be president. So <laughs> he remembers and knows uh, Mitt Romney, though I don't know that Mitt was old enough to remember my grandfather. And uh, so he was very strong in the church. But, you know, as time went on, I think I remember as a 12-year-old or 14-year-old, somewhere in that age area, they took me to an LDS bookstore and they gave me a, they bought me a, a combination, you know, has the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Paul Great Price uh, Bible. And they gave it to me and said, we're giving this to you because we want you to know that the, the Bible is true. And I just kind of thought that was funny. Well, don't you know you put more in there than the Bible? <laughs> but it wasn't long after that that uh, they pretty much told us that they were no longer members of the church and that they were uh, going to different religious groups. And, you know, I never really talked to them directly about it until recently, you know, what was going on. And I think from my grandfather, what he told me is he was disturbed by the whitewash, he called it, the, you know, the parts of church history that aren't, um, the, the parts that just don't necessarily send the message that we want to teach as a church. We we hide them, you know, because they aren't what we're trying to teach. They're, you know, the warts. And to him, that was a, a disaster. You know, he talked about the the Melchizedek priesthood being restored. And the story you get, at least that he grew up understanding, wasn't the same as the story that was given to him uh, with Peter, James, and John laying their hands on the heads of um, Joseph Smith. And so the statue that depicts that episode was a great memory for him, and yet it was a, a, a lie in his mind that that's you know what really damaged his testimony. And so he, he left the church, joined other churches uh, that didn't have this uh, flaw uh, that he observed. Uh, they had no, you know, and that's kind of where I might criticize some other churches. You know, they, they don't have the history because they don't, um, you know, they, they kind of hold on to uh, names and people that you might be able to say, oh, yeah, but this person did this wrong and that wrong. They, you know, they, they try to avoid any historicity problems by being non-denominational, you know, or just stick to the Bible. You know, we can't really go back in time and find things that Christ may have done that looked wrong. So that is a safer way to go with an older religion that just focuses on old scripture, but ours is newer, and so we do have uh, conflicting accounts and various information. So that was, I think, why, I mean, one reason, I can't know all things, but why they left. And they were very much uh, working to discourage us, me and my three siblings, from being members of the church. And it turned out that uh, my father and my grandparents uh, on my father's side were successful in uh, leading away my brothers and sisters from the church. And they decided that they didn't want to be a part of it at a very young age. So they were, I think I was about 14-ish, and they would have been younger. 
uh, up to five years younger. And so I think probably the what differentiated my experience with that of my siblings was this experience that I had with the church being such a positive influence and being put under the wing of so many. You know, I, I really had that Fowler stage three experience, you know, where you learn to identify with this group. So I was a Mormon, and <laughs> that wasn't going to change. And no, I appreciate you sharing all of that because it, it, it just kind of shows this whole way in which each of us deal with different kinds of information and to hear about your dad and to hear about your, your, your paternal grandparents and uh, the experience that they had and, and how they understood that, how they saw the paradigm that they, that they believed in and, and then took apart. Uh, I think we'll set up a little bit more of our interview kind of as we go along. I uh, I wanted to ask you, you said in the intro that you, you didn't serve a mission, mm-hmm. uh, but that you served in the military. Uh, share with us a little bit about uh, that experience. Yeah, sure. Okay, so, you know, in, in spite of my uh, identity as a as a Mormon and really being in love with the church, um, you know, I had a what many would consider a flaw. I think we all have flaws, we all have challenges. One of my challenges is, you know, growing up, of course, you go through puberty and the body, you know, starts training itself, so to speak, to, <laughs> uh, you know, for the future uh, where you procreate. And so, you know, I had something of a, a habit uh, with masturbation, um, which, you know, at the time I kind of put one and two together after a couple of years and I thought, hey, maybe it isn't right that I do that. And so I talked to my bishop at the time, I'd be about 15 years old, and I said, hey, you know, I'm doing this, is you know, but I don't think that's right. What do you think? And so he said, well, that's definitely not right, and you need to avoid doing that. And, you know, I think I had this uh, attitude of wanting to be perfect and to have clean thoughts. And, you know, but at the same time, I would read, you know, the Book of Mormon. I do some very spiritual things. And not long after that, I would fantasize about the opposite sex. You know, I'd have these, uh, you know, sexual experiences. And, you know, it would be very, you know, not, you know, just with myself. I, I definitely kept away from the girls because I, one, I was quite introverted, and, and two, I felt that I wouldn't do well uh, with females just because of the my perceived propensity to perhaps sin sexually. And so that um, was something I struggled with somewhat as a habit, like somebody might struggle with alcoholism or, you know, you name it, the smoking. And, you know, so when it came time to serve a mission. I think my bishop and I, you know, we were looking for a time period, and I don't remember what it was, that I could avoid the masturbation act. And this, you know, I after high school, I stuck around for a year just kind of working jobs, you know, fast food and whatever. And this never seemed to resolve. This issue never resolved. And you know, I kind of just grew tired of it, and I felt I was being judged by other members of the church. You know, people always ask, well, when are you going on your mission? Did you get your papers yet? Did you put in? <laughs> and I knew none of those things was happening, and and I was just very uh, depressed. And in fact, I can go back and look at notes I put in my journal, you know, where I explain how difficult, you know, people are judging me. I know it. I know it. And 
to me, the best way to resolve this problem was to not stick around spinning my wheels, you know, and I decided that the military was the next best uh, alternative for me. Now, as I, somewhere in psychology, they might tell me how this works, but the, the moment I sign up for the military, it seems like I have no more issues with <laughs> sexual fantasy and masturbation. I just, you know, it feels like I'm on the road to something. And so... I spent a significant amount of time being uh, free of the habit that my bishop's like, you know what, you're already signed up to go in the military, so I know that's what you're going to do, but I think we need to ordain you an elder. You've made some great progress. And so and so I did. You know, I was ordained an elder, and I went into the military. And, you know, much to my uh, surprise and, I think, gratitude, the, the ward was very accepting of my military experience, or my military, going into the military, uh, I would receive letters just like the missionaries did uh, from the primary. Uh, you know, they, they really treated me well, and, and so I, I com commend them uh, for helping me to feel, you know, like I was doing my best and that that was uh, not conditional, you know, on going the typical missionary route. So you, you go into the military, the, the ward that you are a part of, welcomes you in with open arms. They're very accepting of you. Uh, so, so what's going on in the church at this time and, and how, how is your testimony growing or, or being affected? Okay. So, well, the military, that experience for me was extremely, uh, formative. It, it really helped me to, um, bring that identity together in a way that I don't think could have been done otherwise. I very much stood up for my values, the values of the church. I had the the nerve to tell a, a drill sergeant that uh, real men don't cuss in front of the entire platoon, and that didn't go over very well with him. <laughs> and I wrote home about it, and people are proud of me for standing up for, you know, my values. Uh, there was a other times, the other soldiers would try to tease me with uh, pornography, uh, stuff like that, and I would stand up and say, no, we can't do that, you know, and anything that I saw among the behaviors of my fellow soldiers that I felt was not in harmony with the gospel, I would let them know. And so I was a little bit of a snob, I mean, maybe aloof of uh, others, um, maybe in a good way, but sometimes not in a good way, and in fact, I can tell you a brief story. I went away for on leave, and I came back late at night uh, to my uh, room in the barracks and that I shared with two other soldiers. And right there on my bed, staring right at me, was a, an open uh, pornographic magazine. Of course, I thought that this was my buddies trying to um, pervert me. So even though it was past midnight, I picked that thing up and I chucked it right at the head of the <laughs> the gentleman who was sleeping next to me. Just beamed him. And he kind of woke up with a start and groan. It's like, what? Oh, and he went back to sleep. And the next morning, you know, I woke up and he's looking at me, you know, half angry, half sad. Why did you do that? <laughs> so, well, you left that porn right there for me to see, didn't you? Dude, I didn't know you were coming back tonight. I'm so sorry. But that's the kind of person I was, I guess. I wasn't uh, going to to mince words and, you know, let I wanted people to know exactly where I was at. So I did apologize to him. <laughs> um, right. So you, you saw things, and, and maybe as we relate, you know, people as they transition through through ways of seeing their faith, that you it seems like you're kind of in that black and white stage where 
you know, you're, it's your responsibility to, to be a light uh, on a hill to all of these people and, and your job to stand up for all of your beliefs and, and you're in the right and they're in the wrong and they've got to kind of uh, come to grips with the things that you stand for. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, during my military service, I, I was also married in the temple uh, to my wife. And uh, so that was a very great experience for me. And I love the temple. I love the feeling of going into the temple and uh, the endowment session. Uh, the initiatories, you know, I felt the symbolism of being made clean and progressing. And so, you, you know, these things really strengthen my testimony and resolve. Um, eventually, I, I, you know, I left the military and uh, I, you know, even though I'd been a poor student, uh, something about the military threw a switch in my head and uh, it taught me to work. And, I, you know, I, I started school. And it's when I started college, I think, that my testimony started to get some chinks in the armor, I suppose, and start to be broken down in some ways. Uh, Okay, so, and I'll explain how that happened. So I I got home from the military, my wife and I, uh, we living in California, and I began attending institute and taking some first-level college courses. One of the first classes I took was a class in biology, and the teacher uh, really liked me quite a bit. Uh, In fact, he asked me to to major in biology, (laughs) and I told him no. (laughs) I do this well in all my classes. Uh And so I was a little bit (laughs) uh, narcissistic at that time in my life, too. And you know, but he would make a point in almost every lesson in his class to bring up evolution and take a swipe at creationism. And in my mind, I didn't necessarily feel like creationism was completely incompatible with evolution. But, you know, I felt that disrespect of my beliefs in what he taught. And yet I wondered what it was about the thinking, the thought process uh, that he had and the scientific community has that looks as humans as a derivative of an early worm. You know, he explained how our uh, digestive system isn't inside our body. It's the fact that we're like worms and we, you know, a long time ago, (laughs) all reptiles and mammals, you know, kind of share similarities with very basic creatures, even worms. And so he kind of had everything, you know, put out into this gradual growth of life into humanity and So, to me, the difficult part of that was the concept that we can put together a story of life that doesn't include God. And to me, that was, you know, difficult. Um, But it wasn't so difficult that I didn't uh, enjoy my church activities. I just kind of put it on the, put it aside uh, mentally. Um, Also, during my college years, I had a lot of um, experience in church callings. I uh, served in a young men's presidency. I was involved in scouting, and I really felt a a sense of purpose and meaning, you know, working with the youth of the church uh, during that time. Now, some of the specific ideas that were taught in college, not just in biology, but in my physics classes and others, yeah, I began to see that these ideas of scientific method, uh, how we use peer reviews and we reproduce um, the effects of what we're observing, 
And, you know, I came across this concept of Occam's razor, which pretty much states the, the simplest answer is best. Uh, that's why when we see crop circles, we don't jump to aliens. We jump to, okay, this probably looks like a human did that, because that's the scientific simplest answer, because we haven't scientifically discovered UFOs yet. So that seemed to simplify a lot of things, and... I got to a point where I was becoming very critical of lots of things going on around me. Uh, for example, a lot of my wife's family, uh, they would get into health fads and multi-level marketing, and I would do some research on the internet and you know start poking holes in those arguments you know that they were making to why this is such a great health product. And you know even today I'm very <laughs> skeptical of health products that come out. I, I just, you know, I, we don't know those work. <laughs> and so I was very pro-science. And, you know, I would get in arguments with my family on my wife's side and with my wife over these things. And I was becoming something of a, I, I might call it a Fowler stage four, you know, where I'm questioning the things that I know church-wise, but maybe taking it out on other things that I can get away with it more. You know, where... I'm calling into question the whole concept of a, you know, multi-level marketing. You know, the whole thing is built on a, to me, mathematically, you can even prove how poor people would be, you know, going into it. That the system was going to create more losers than winners, no matter how big it grew. And so, you know, at this time I was really kind of creating a divide between myself and other believers along a, a line of, skepticism of some things that weren't necessarily church-related, which I felt members of the church, to me, seemed too easy to pick up on supernatural concepts or not very well-founded ideas and to be more simplistically believing. And so these things started to really, I, I guess, wear me down in a way that caused some concern and confusion. Um, you know, and it also appeared to me that there was a a shrinking area for God to exist. They call that the God of the gaps. And that is wherever we see science increasing in its knowledge and understanding that we take God out of the out of the equation. And we see, well, if God's not there, well, he's back here some more. So we might say, yeah, evolution's real, but God was behind it in ways we can't see. And then when science says, oh, well, look, we have a good theory for that. We use Occam's razor to cut God out. So where's your God now? Well, we have to push him back even further. <laughs> so now he just kicked it off. Um, so you can see that that was a, you know, a difficulty uh, that I had to, to understand and learn to grapple with as well. Right, right. So you're, as you're learning information, as you're, as you're kind of taking in studies of these different subjects and different uh, philosophical viewpoints little by little it sounds like things are kind of being disassembled and you're and you're having to take you know a serious look at at the things that you've chosen to believe up to to this point and so what do you do with all that where do things go okay um that's a good question you know i had to start to do a lot of this dismantling was a good thing in a way you know at first it seems like a real scary and difficult thing to go through you could lose your faith you could leave the church and those things are true uh, in my case, I, I can never let go of the good and what was well with the church and what I appreciated about it. Uh, so I began to dismantle a lot of the concepts that I felt were uh, superficial, not well thought through. For example, paying tithing will increase your salary. 
the more temple roles you get your name put on, the better it's going to be for you. Uh, you know, garments protect you from physical harm, but Hulkman didn't work for this soldier, but it did that one. You know, you start to realize that there's not this perfect, you know, model uh, for the church to work. And I think one of the big ways that I can explain this is the concept in science of a placebo effect. And that placebo is where, uh, for those who don't know, I mean, it's when you do a, a medical trial of a drug, you have to give the drug to two sets of people. One set of people gets the drug, and the other set of people gets something that looks like the drug, but just doesn't contain an active ingredient. That's known not to have any effect. And what they, and then maybe you'll have a third group where nobody gets anything. And what they've noticed is that the, a group that gets no treatment doesn't improve as well as a group that gets a sham treatment with a placebo. But if the uh, actual medication works, it does better than no treatment, and it does better than the placebo. So that's how they know that they've uh, factored out uh, the placebo effect. And so to me, you know, in science, the placebo effect, we laugh at it. I mean, it's just, I mean, I'm not a scientist, but I know to me I laughed at it. And you just say, yeah, that's just placebo. Oh, come on, you, you believe that because it's just the placebo effect. We factor that out. And, you know, as I've learned more and began to think about this placebo effect, I think, you know, you could say, well, priesthood blessings are just placebo effect when they work. And, well, how do I reconcile this concept of placebo effect being the most likely answer for why priesthood blessings work? And I say most likely, I mean that in the scientific sense. And so how you put those pieces together? So if I separate them all, I have placebo, I have priesthood blessings, I have my faith. They're not jiving in a way that makes sense. One of the ways I learned to do that was to look at placebo effect and not say to myself that that's wrong, that that's not a tool that we can use. And placebo effect, by definition, I think, is something that we don't understand. <laughs> so that's what we're, fa we're factoring out because we don't understand it in the scientific community. Um, so I began to say, well, is it wrong? So say you have somebody who's suffering, and while they're suffering... Modern science says we don't have anything else we can do. And then you say, look, you're stuck. And the person goes on the internet and they say, well, look, this, this guy says he can cure cancer with this uh, medicine that's made from frog's warts or something, right? And you just want to laugh at them and just say, it's not going to work, buddy. And it's going to cost you $1,000. And, you know, in some of those cases, I would say, well, watch the money, you know, watch, you know, how that could possibly hurt you. Um, but at the same time, you know, I've learned that it may not be the right thing to say, hey, look, that's not going to work. It's not scientific. Maybe it will work for them. And if it is placebo effect or if it is faith, why is it bad? It really can't be bad. What, what bad is going to come of it? You know, I think the one thing that's bad that could come out of it is that people start to downplay the role of science. But on the other side, do we have to downplay the role of faith in, in healing? You know, the belief, uh, the understanding that an appeal to Heavenly Father is going to give you something uh, that, you, you know, modern science won't. And I, I think we absolutely have to maintain that. And we can't toss that aside. And so I think it might take a little bit of finesse with these issues... But ultimately, we have to admit that placebo effect and faith healings and all these things are real. And if they're real, we cannot dismiss them. And they should be implemented in a, in a way that's friendly and non-destructive to science and also science towards faith. So that's how I put them together. Uh, maybe occasionally I see them as a paradox still, but 
Yeah, you just got to be happy with them both. If they work, they work. And I can't draw the perfect line between them, but I will say that if they work, we need to use them. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I like the way that you're you're kind of giving a different framework in which to see faith in and to allow you know each of us to exercise it. I, I want to begin kind of wrapping up. And I want to ask you just maybe with like some of these tough issues that are that are out there within Mormonism, both historical and perhaps doctrinal as well, and even some of the social issues with uh, uh, the LGBT and women's issues. I mean, how how have you been able to kind of go through your transition of kind of being skeptical for a little while and then realizing that it's just a bigger world out there and then being aware of all of these kinds of issues? How have you how have you navigated those? Mm. Well, in order to I think explain how I've navigated those issues. I have to talk about a difficult situation uh, that I, I guess, ran into, somewhat like a, being hit by a train. Uh, this was in 2008. I, I had a military career at the time that was just getting started, and as an officer in the National Guard in Idaho, um, I had a good job uh, working for a Silicon Valley company, and I. I had two kids, and I was grateful to have kids. My wife and I were childless for a while for reasons we never figured out, but when, but when they started coming, it was awesome. And so I was kind of high on life, um, doing really well. I did have a few run-ins with um, changes in opinions I, that I had about things that the church took a stand on, like debt, whereas you know, I kind of took the stand that you know some debt is okay we shouldn't try to run away from it but others were more hardcore anti-debt and so i had some arguments with people in the ward and one turned out to become my bishop later which definitely tried my faith <laughs> but i was able to to work that out um but you know these things that i had were starting to kind of crumble my feeling of being a uh, highly regarded member of the church um these disagreements between others it seemed like i was maybe not seen as uh, high priest material. At almost the same time I was going through that, you know, I came down with a, an illness uh, that's called Cushing's disease, and it was caused by a tumor in my brain uh, that produced a lot of stress hormone, which was a large contributor to my inability to function as a good officer in the army, uh, particularly with my ability to uh, pass the physical fitness test. I had gone down in my physical ability uh, quite a bit, and I was getting very sick. And it was, uh, Cushing's disease is something that, that will take your life. It takes maybe five or ten years uh, if it's not uh, healed or corrected. And I also lost my job. This is at the beginning of the Great Recession, and our employer decided to shut down its Idaho, uh, its presence in Idaho, and moved uh, the minority of the jobs to a different state, and the majority of us were laid off. So I was stuck unemployed and very ill, but we had a child coming on the way. And during an ultrasound, we were told that this child might have Down syndrome. So the child comes um, after I've had a surgery to fix my Cushing's disease, but the surgery fails. And this, in spite of a priesthood blessing, it failed. And when my son was born, he didn't have Down's. But he had something much worse, and he was, uh, they, we thought he was blind, couldn't hear. Uh, he, it turns out nowadays he does have the ability to see and hear, but it's different from ours. So it's, but he still can do it. He uh, had hand deformities, uh, 
he has six fingers on one hand, which we think is fun. <laughs> um, but, you know, I was kind of living in a dream with everything going wrong at once. I worried about how I'd get health insurance, what's going to happen if I don't get this Cushing's disease fixed in time. So putting all this together, um, I really felt a complete loss of control of what was going on out there. And I also became angry at people. I felt that people were to blame for the debt that caused the Great Recession and also for the inability, inability to keep spending money to keep people employed. And so I really got angry at people. The point with all these things was I began to feel that either I'm going to be angry and upset or I'm going to have to find out, better understand what's going on uh, in life in general. And that's, I guess, where I came up with, you know, it seems like an idea to me, but, you know, I would look at the word, the world, I would look at the world from a viewpoint of utilitarianism sometimes, where we have to figure out what creates the best happiness, right, in the short term, but especially in the long term. And then there's a deontological outlook that says, well, we have truth propositions that you can't ever negate, and, you know, like, thou shalt not steal, right? But it looked to me that a lot of those things you can make exceptions for. But as I started to dive into reading and understanding uh, more, I read the works of William James, which was very helpful to me. Also, Benjamin Franklin's autobiography and Jonathan Haidt's uh, recent books uh, that I think we've got to provide links to these on your website, by the way. Um, they started to open up to me an idea that rationality that is behind science, that that rationality is not the driving force behind finding truth, um, especially in a social and uh, gr human group continuity um, way. Uh, maybe I'll explain that a little bit better here, but rationality isn't why we do things rationality is how we explain we did why we explain we did something i started to understand this idea of confabulation where i would make a decision and it really wasn't because i was all that smart it was because i felt something needed to be done to fix my own pain or the pain of another and the reasoning i would give was really just kind of made up and so this humility that i gained from realizing that my that my anger you know, my um, my <laughs> utilitarian constructions of what we should do with my son and my righteous indignation about how everyone was messing things up were really just my rationalist constructions to justify my own reason for being sad and down and out. And as I started to realize it and just kind of look in the mirror and say, wow, you know, this... My rationalizations are not true. <laughs> what does this say about science and a lot of the other things we talk about? Now, science still works, and it's still great, but I realize that it's working where it works, and where it doesn't work, we don't need to use it. And I had to find that, that connection between me and my son and my wife and my father and my in-laws. You know, that says we're all sons and daughters of Heavenly Father, and that means that we need to work together with mutual respect and love and admiration and support. And to me, when I see people doing things that are wrong, uh, whether by the church's standard or some other standard, you know, I, I have learned not to jump 
to conclusion too quickly and just understand that faith journeys are different. I even look to the church as a, it's kind of like its own entity that makes mistakes and it has its own narrative and story that it's working on. And, you know, if I have a personal opinion, maybe my opinion could be, I think the church should allow gay marriages, uh, gay temple marriages. Um, or if I believed that the church should allow women to have the priesthood. And to a certain extent, I don't have these beliefs because I feel like the church has its own relationship with God that I have to respect. Just like I respect yours or my wife's or my in-laws or even my own father's relationship with God. And at the same time, we need to talk about these issues so that we can grow and learn in these uh, different ideas and concepts that we're exploring. And when we try to belittle or to treat unfairly the opinions of the church or the opinions of other people, we destroy that ability to learn and to take to ourselves uh, something that we might gain from someone else's knowledge and experience by that belittling. So I, I hope that answers your question. I, you know, I just want to say when I put everything together, it doesn't have to fit perfectly because I know there's things I cannot know. And I know there's limitations to what humans can know. I believe in absolute truth. There is a right and a wrong way to do many things. But the human perspective can never see absolute truth in its entirety. Any simple statement like, it is wrong to steal, is going to have an exception at some point and in some way where it's going to be right to do it, to do a greater good somewhere else. And this isn't the kind of thing you want to teach your kids until maybe they're older, <laughs> because it could be dangerous. But I think for some of us, we start to realize that um, we're all kind of circling around absolute truth. Some of us are getting closer to it than others. So when we see people doing things, quote unquote, wrong, we give allowance to the fact that maybe we're not sure our absolute truth view is the same as theirs or necessarily that mine has to be better than theirs. And maybe their situation is such that absolute truth does have to look different to them. And I think that's an important way to look at life. And I, I find that that is compatible with scripture in, in so many ways. And, you know, a way to move forward and be patient with others. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's beautiful. And it reminded me of a discussion that my wife and I just had the other day where we were having a disagreement and we were both holding our ground and it and it was an opportunity where both of us could have gotten really mad with each other and just kind of, you know, had one of those big spats that that's husband and wife sometimes do and and uh, I was thinking to myself, I said to her and this was this was my thought to her and it, it, it I think hits on what you're talking about, which is I told her I said I said I have my truth. It's it's the way I see things. It's the way I feel about this disagreement we're having. And you have your truth, which is the, your perspective and, the, and what you think was said or what was meant or what was intended. And you have your understanding of that. And neither one of our truths can we be sure are correct. There may be an absolute truth out there, but neither one of us have it. And that we need to simply be more respectful of each other and recognize that the other person's view is valid to them. And in all likelihood, and I remember, and I've shared this several times on the podcast, Robert Kirby, the editor, one of the uh, editors for the Salt Lake Tribune, made the comment that every one of us believe things that are not correct. 
and where is it my place to jump in and, and say, hey, you know, I'm definitely 100% certain that on this issue, I have all the facts. And not only do I have all the facts, but I'm interpreting them correctly. I, I think for each of us, that's an overstatement. I uh, I had a discussion with a, a young man yesterday who is no longer believing in the church. And he approached me with an issue on a discussion board and said, how can you still have faith when when Joseph Smith did this, 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 and this? And I wrote him back and said, I totally grasp that the conclusion you're making is a valid one, that one can look at the information and one can come to that conclusion. But I said, but essentially, that's not the only conclusion one can make. And I also see validity in taking the exact same information and seeing it in this completely other light. And and I, I feel bad because some people can't do that. But I think the more that we can do that, and I think this is what you're speaking to, the more that we can be flexible and realize that there's just things that we think we know that we don't, the more we can kind of keep plugging away and try to reach in and, and take different perspectives and look at the way different people put things together, the more room at the end of the day we're going to be able to have faith and to, to hang on within the church. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, you know, one book I, I would also mention that is written by a, a member of the church. Uh, his name is Chris Williams. Uh, the book is called Let It Go. Yeah, in this book, his, uh, a number of people in his family are killed uh, by a drunk driver who uh, I, I believe is also a member of the church, uh, a young man, a teenager, who got drunk and got in a car accident and killed his wife and uh, two kids and one child that was on the way. And reading this book about how he forgives and learns to you know, talk with um, and become friends with uh, the person that killed his <laughs> um, family members, um, I think was really a, a great turning point for me that, you know, this other kid, he's able to look at him as a, a person who made a mistake, but as a human, just as equal to him going through his experience in life, partly through an experience that he, that he had that was very similar as a young man when he killed a child by hitting this child with a car, but he wasn't at fault. It wasn't drunk driving. The kid just ran out in the street real fast, and there's nothing he could do about it. But, you know, even though this other kid was sinning when he, you know, by drinking and getting in a car, he avoided any judgment of this person um, that was outside of maybe what the law had to do. You know, he didn't tell the judge, you know, let him go. But he did say, you know what, I'm not going to... You know, society has a debt for him to pay, but I'm not going to add anything to it. And I compare that with another example of a off-duty police officer who was driving drunk and killed a, a woman and a child, and how when his court day came, his, I guess the woman's husband and her family members completely vilified him, as vilified as they could possibly vilify. You know, they wanted to destroy his name and make him look like such a monster that he would get the maximum sentence possible. You know, I, when I look at those situations together, I know that on the one side where you had, let's judge this guy and get him the worst possible sentence, that's where we have this judgmental, you know, we're not giving you any leniency because you hurt us. It's good versus evil, black and white. And on the other side, you look at Chris Williams' story, and, you know, we look at people and their imperfections, and, you know, somehow we're just able to, ah, you got to find peace with this. Give me a hug, you know, <laughs> and we are not really opposed to each other. In fact, you know, you're working out your salvation. Please don't let this become a stopper for you. You know, I, I just think that's amazing that you can find these uh, this openness with others uh, 
partly through an intellectual understanding of what absolute value, absolute truth is, and the fact that we don't know it, and we are not God, and we are not judging, and we cannot take that, um, I guess, that responsibility onto ourselves. But I would like to close by saying there is one thing I think that we as members of the church do need to take upon ourselves as much as we possibly can. And, I, and this comes from Christ and his story of how he died on the cross and how he suffered in the Gethsemane for us. And when I've looked at the pain that I suffered at, quote-unquote, the hands of others, um, which I, that's, <laughs> that's an incorrect way to state it, but that's how I felt, um, I think about what Christ did for me and how he took upon himself all my sins and made it possible for me not to have the consequence of them, um, at least in the next life, even if in this life I still suffer for <laughs> consequences. Um, but he allows us at some point to overcome them and to move past them. And I look at what he did for me as something that I need to do for everyone else, just like he did it for everyone else. Now, I can't forgive sins, but I, you know, from God's perspective, but I can forgive them from mine. You know, I can stop looking at people as something detestable and not to be loved because they don't see the right way to do stuff. You know, I can look at them the way Christ looked at me. And I, you know, I really wish there's more emphasis on that. I think among church members that, you know, we are to be like him, not just because we behave quote-unquote perfectly and do what's right all the time, but maybe include into what's right all the time, <laughs> but to be like him in how we forgive and how we take on others' burdens. And we're not afraid to get to know the sinner or even to marry the sinner, you know, or go have lunch with the sinner and not be afraid of them tainting us. We should, I think like Pope Francis said it, you know, get... <laughs> get down with, I can't remember his quote, so I can't quote it, but he said that God wants to be close to misery and suffering, and that's where we should want to be. And I do see a lot of that, I think, missing uh, in all religious groups, uh, even in ours more than I think we would care to admit. And so if, if I had to shoot for some goal, it wouldn't be that everybody figures something out other than just how to coexist lovingly and don't judge unrighteously. Don't put people into buckets with labels on them and sit back and let God do that bucketing if he does. And from our perspective, be a part of the atonement for others by forgiving them. Beautiful, beautiful. John Young, uh, appreciate you being on and being able to share your story. And, and I hope, again, that uh, listeners can expect to see uh, several episodes uh, from John where he shares his perspective on various issues and, and I think you guys will find it very helpful. John, thank you so much and uh, and look forward to hearing from you again. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it, Bill. <laughs>